the text, I, I changed it after the bulletin uh, was created, uh, but it's right on the screen. It's going to be the 39th Psalm and verses 1 through 7. Psalm 39, verses 1 through 7. This is the word of God. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. and I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused, the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O oh Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us. We pray that you would show us ourselves in your word and show us yourself. For you and you alone are the answer to every single problem that vexes us in this life. And simply coming into right relationship with you and seeing the truth and the whole truth will set everything right eventually. So open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, there was a, a period of time in British history uh, where the people seemed to look on death almost as a joke. And uh, that is reflected very often in the inscriptions on these old tombstones. There's one in England that reads, Beneath this stone, a lump of clay, lies Arabella Young, who on the 24th of May began to hold her tongue. There's uh, one in Scotland, and the Scots are notorious for being stingy and cheap and thrifty. It says, buried neath this kirkyard stain, this churchyard stone, lies Stimmy, Stim, uh, stingy Jimmy Wyatt, who died one day at half past ten and saved a dinner by it. Laura and I used to live in uh, Boonville, Indiana, southern Indiana, outside of Evansville. That was Abraham Lincoln's boyhood home. And just down the street from our little house was the town cemetery. And it was a, quite an old town by American standards. And the cemetery was beautiful. It was the, the place where everybody went to walk. And, and it had a little gazebo, and it was just very nice. And so Laura and I would go, and we would walk there on warm summer evenings or on fall afternoons when the weather was good and the leaves were turning. And we would take our little dog, Shelby. And as I would walk, I would notice the stones. Um, I, I, I remember in Boonville seeing, I, I, I saw the, the stone of one man and I said, this is what I want on my gravestone someday. 
it just had the guy's name and the date of his birth and the date of his death, and it said, born twice, died once. That was it. I was like, that's perfect. That's what I want. But as I would go, you would see all kinds of different things on these stones. You would see the graves of young men who went off to war and paid the full measure of their devotion. You would see the stones of children struck down by illness. Uh, Very often, I mean, in the 18th and 19th century, the infant mortality rate was just shocking. Huge number of children buried there. I would see double headstones for a husband and a wife, and I would see that one side had a date of death filled in and the other side did not, and I would know that somewhere there was a husband or a wife who was soldiering on alone. And as I would walk, the words of Psalm 90 would burn in my brain. Psalm 90, where Moses says, Teach us, O Lord, to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Someday, if the Lord tarries, I will die. It may be in an accident or a car wreck. I might have a heart attack. I might get cancer. It might happen when I'm 80. It might happen next week. But it is inevitable. I will die, and so will you. The statistics are absolutely amazing. One out of every one dies, 100%. And the Bible calls on us to face that fact squarely and to take it into account when we go about living our life in this world. Psalm 39 and verse 6, the psalmist says, man is a mere phantom, a mere shadow. In James it says, What is your life? You are a vapor. You're like the fog that's there in the morning and burns off by 10 o'clock. Jesus tells us in Matthew 10 that we ought not to fear them which kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. In Luke, he asks the question, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? And the answer is nothing. I want to ask you this morning, Do we really believe that there is no death? We don't act as if we do. If we did, we wouldn't fear war or disease or economic loss or social decay and chaos. We wouldn't fear the nursing home. The Christian should have no fear of death. Instead, the Christian should regard death with a sense of anticipation and adventure, with a sense of wonder, and with a sense of great expectation. Because in death, all of our hopes, and all of our dreams, and all of our purest longings are going to be abundantly fulfilled. If you go to the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, you will find in a glass case a series of containers. And these containers are the constituent elements of a human body. There's enough phosphorus, for instance, in a human body to tip the heads of about a thousand matches. There's about enough iron for six tenpenny nails. There's enough silicon to make a computer chip. There's enough lime to whitewash a chicken coop. And there's enough water for about a quick shower. 
and you look at all these elements laid out in this glass case, and you read what this, the signs say, and fundamentally what they're saying is, there is you. That's all you are. But is that true? Are we really only so much carbon and lime and water? Are we really just the stuff of earth? Are we really just an animated pile of clay? And the answer is no. There are a thousand things that are more insane than that that are easier to believe. This is my house, but it's not me. This is the tent in which I dwell, but it's not the occupant. You and I are spirits living in bodies. We are created, says Solomon and Ecclesiastes, with eternity in our hearts. Isn't it amazing that you can, anthropologists have gone to nearly every culture in the world, and every culture in the world instinctively knows that death is not the end. That there's some kind of existence of the individual after death. The Christian has hope, not in himself, but in God. And there was a time when Christians were more aware of this hope, when they sang songs proclaiming, this world is not my home, when they were marching on to Zion, the beautiful city of God, where they joyfully anticipated meeting loved ones in the sweet by and by. And this hope gave courage to our grandparents, and it dried their tears, and it made their hearts sing. They knew that those who know Christ and belong to Christ will pass through the pains of death. They will walk that valley, and they will die. But, but when we die, we rise again. And we're clothed, not with dying clay, but with a new and glorious body as a shining child of God. Search your heart as you sit there. Isn't there a longing for eternity? Isn't there something deep inside of you that cries out at the indignity and the indecency of this life? You know who really gets that? Anybody that's buried a child at whatever age. When a parent has to bury a child, there is something deeply, deeply unnatural about it, and their hearts always cry out, this is wrong. Children should bury their parents. Parents shouldn't bury their children. There's a sense, though, that this death is an intruder. It's an ugly enemy. There's a an instinctive longing in each of us for a world where there is no more pain and there is no more sorrow and there is no more death and there is no more suffering and there is no more parting from one another where the people around you are all kind and goodness reigns, where the, the hair does not gray and the brow doesn't wrinkle. Think about it for a minute. Doesn't time itself seem strange? Think about it. We marvel at the passing of time. I mean, it was, I'm, I'm, my wife and I are preparing ourselves psychologically to launch the first daughter out into the world, and I think we're both terrified. But the other thing that we remember is, it was only yesterday when you were a little toddler doing laps in the kitchen and your walker, and you'd come around and give me a high five and, and go around again, and now I can't even get you to look at me because you're off with your friends driving your car. What happened? 
Where did it go? I don't remember. C.S. Lewis said, isn't it strange that we wonder at time? It's all we've ever existed in. He said, it's, it's as strange as a fish wondering about the wetness of the water. And that itself is an indication that we were not made for time. We are not made for time. Uh, I had a, 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 there's a wonderful story in my family. My great, it would be my great-great-grandmother. Um, her name was Grandmother Morgan. That's how we knew her. I, I, uh, one of the treasures in my family is an old cassette tape made in the, in the 60s of her just telling stories about her life. She was born, I believe, in the 1880s and lived to a good old age. She, was, uh, she lived at home alone right up to the end. And uh, there was one time in Parma, Missouri, there was one time when my uh, mom went to visit her and the house was open and she knocked on the door and nobody answered and she went in and she couldn't find Grandmother Morgan and she was um, a little bit concerned and she started calling and walking around and all of a sudden she heard her say, Susie, I'm up here. And she was on the third story of her roof, patching her roof. And she was in her 80s when she pulled that stunt. That's the kind of woman she was. Well, Grandmother Morgan uh, went to the hospital in Cape Girardeau, Missouri for some kind of surgery, and um, she died on the operating table. And they were able to revive her and bring her back. And when she was in recovery, the surgeon went to see her, and he said, you know, we lost you for a few minutes when you were on the table. She said, I know. And it was wonderful. I didn't hurt. I was surrounded by people that I love. And you brought me back to this. And she reamed the doctor out for starting her life again. That's the kind of woman she was. The next time she died, a few years later, that one stuck. And everybody knew it was coming. And it was gentle and it was easy. I don't know about you, but it brings me great comfort and it fortifies my courage as I contemplate the journey to my last breath to know that there are Christians who have trodden that path before me, who have passed through the one-way doors which separate this life from the next and have been given permission to come back and give us glimpses of the glory to come. There was a, a, a black uh, poet, an academic named James Weldon Johnson, he was one of the first presidents of the NAACP. He lived in the early 20th century, and, and he expresses this great hope in a poem called Go Down Death. And uh, he says that it was, it was suggested to him by his memories as a little boy of being in these little black churches in the South listening to the preachers. And this is what he says. Weep not, weep not, she is not dead. She's resting in the bosom of Jesus. Heartbroken husband, weep no more. Grief-stricken son, weep no more. Left lonesome daughter, weep no more. She's only just gone home. Day before yesterday morning, God was looking down from his great high heaven, looking down on all his children, and his eye fell on Sister Caroline, tossing 
on her bed of pain, and God's big heart was touched with pity, with the everlasting pity. And God sat back on His throne, and He commanded the tall, bright angel standing at His right hand, Call me death. And that tall, bright angel cried in a voice that broke like a clap of thunder, Call death! Call death! And the echo sounded down the streets of heaven until it reached away back in that shadowy place where death waits with his pale white horses. And death heard the summons, and he leaped on his fastest horse, pale as a sheet in the moonlight. Up the golden street death galloped, and the hoofs from his horse struck fire from the gold, but they didn't make no sound. Up death rode to the great white throne and waited for God's command. And God said, go down, death, go down. Go down to Savannah, Georgia, down in Yamacraw, and find Sister Caroline. She's borne the burden and the heat of the day. She's labored long in my vineyard, and she's tired, and she's weary. Go down, death, and bring her to me. And death didn't say a word. But he loosed the reins on his pale white horse, and he clamped the spurs to his bloodless sides, and out and down he rode through heaven's pearly gates, past suns and moons and stars on death road, and the foam from his horse was like a comet in the sky. On death road, leaving the lightning's flash behind, straight on down he came, and while we were watching round her bed, she turned her eyes and looked away. She saw what we couldn't see. She saw old death. She saw old death coming like a falling star, but death didn't frighten Sister Caroline. He looked to her like a welcome friend. And she whispered to us, I'm going home. And she smiled. And she closed her eyes. And death took her up like a baby. And she lay in his icy arms, but she didn't feel no chill. And death began to ride again, up beyond the evening star, out beyond the morning star, into the glittering light of glory, onto the great white throne. And there he laid Sister Caroline on the loving breast of Jesus. And Jesus took his own hand, and he wiped away her tears, and he smoothed the furrows from her face. And the angels sang a little song, and Jesus rocked her in his arms. And he kept saying, take your rest, take your rest, take your rest. Weep not, weep not. She's not dead, she's resting in the bosom of Jesus. It brings me great comfort and it fortifies my courage as I contemplate the lonely journey to my last breath to know that that's what's waiting for me. To know that Jesus has taken care of all of it. He actually says in John, I believe it's John 5, that whoever follows him will not taste death. Your body will be there. But the part of you that feels anxiety and suffers won't be there. I've seen it. I've talked to people who've been near death, who've experienced it. They can kind of come closer to this world, and when they do, they feel their body a little bit, or they can kind of back away, and then they don't feel anything. And it's okay. You don't need to be afraid. 
But what if Sister Caroline didn't know Jesus? Hmm? That's what concerns you and me today. What if she didn't know Jesus? There is a reason that the psalmist prays for the Lord to remind him that life is a vapor, that we're here one moment and we're gone the next. There's a reason that Moses prays to God to teach him to number his days aright so that he can gain a heart of wisdom. The primary purpose of this short life is to come to know Jesus. That's it. This world is nothing more and nothing less than the vestibule of eternity. Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 13 and 14 that the vast majority of humanity will be lost. And the wise person takes this into account and crafts his or her life around this greatest and most important fact. And then shrugs off those things which hinder and distract us from this greatest task of knowing and following Jesus. And you cannot properly prepare until you come to know Jesus. Until you come to him and bow down and say, Master, I trust you. Save me. Save me from everything that harms me. And you place your full confidence in him. And you rethink your way of looking at the world. And you follow Him. You can't prepare for death until you have bowed at His feet and poured out your life before Him and said, it is yours. You see, it's only when we know Him and know that we know Him that we are not afraid. Because then we know there is nothing to fear. And it will only be when you are no longer afraid that you can actually begin to live and to live abundantly. And when death comes for you, and it will, it will come to you like it came to Sister Caroline as a loving friend sent to usher you in to a glorious life. But what will you do if you don't know Jesus? You know, if you go down to Nashville, Tennessee, um, President Andrew Jackson's estate is there. It's called the Hermitage. It's a museum now. It's wonderful, beautiful mansion. And uh, you can see out in the yard where Andrew Jackson and his wife are buried. And then a little further away from the house, there's a, a row of, uh, the, when I was there, it was just the foundations of some cabins that had been slave cabins. And Near there is the grave of a, of a man who had been born as a slave on Andrew Jackson's estate. And after the Civil War was lost by the South, he was set free. And he chose to stay as an employee. And, um, and when Andrew Jackson died, he stayed there as a caretaker and, and worked for the estate. And he lived up until the early 20th century. And uh, a newspaper reporter came to interview him uh, when he was an old man. It would have been about 1920 or so. And uh, they were discussing his recollections of Andrew Jackson. And the reporter said, uh, do you think Mr. Jackson, President Jackson, went to heaven? And this man's response was very quick and very sure. He said, no. 
the reporter was like, really? <laughs> Why not? And he said, President Jackson prepared in great detail for every trip he ever took. And I never heard him prepare for that one. What will you do if you don't know Jesus? Amen.